Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. The following articles are from the February 2024 Opera with Opera News magazine, and we'll begin by finishing the remainder of What Makes a Man. Ragtime represents a farewell to the era of legit singing on Broadway. I've covered the role, and it's some of the most thrilling singing I have ever done. It requires a diverse cast with diverse skill sets and could easily be done in an operatic way, where we might hear more of the beauty and clarity than is often ascribed to the piece. Austin would appear to be just the man for that job. In 2022, he became one of the very few opera singers to ever receive a Drama Desk Award nomination for his performance as the charismatic, untrustworthy husband in Ricky Ian Gordon's Intimate Apparel. With a libretto by Lynn Nottage, adapted from her 2003 play, at Lincoln Center Theater. It was a special moment for opera, and I don't think we're realizing the gravity of that. This was the first time in history that a legit opera was even in the category. There have been nominations for Porgy, but only when it was adapted into a musical. And our audiences were theater audiences. His focus on the importance of the nomination for the art form points to his disarming lack of self-aggrandizement. The quality also reflected when I ask him if he has always known that he is special. No, he responds after a moment of thought. My parents always told me I was special, but I had always been surrounded by people who were more talented than I was. As a young person, I had other boy sopranos to look up to. When I became someone they looked up to, my voice broke. There was always someone who had more than I did. It has only been very recently that I have begun to realize that maybe my parents were right. As for his future development, my parents have very strong opinions about that, he says with a laugh. My father thinks that I am going to grow into a verity baritone, which is possible if I maintain the height and add a bit of richness as I grow older. My mother is convinced that I am going to be a Heldon tenor, which is interesting because my father began as a baritone. That's not impossible, but it's not something I agree with. The more I have matured, the more I have appreciated the beauty and complexity of the baritone voice. It's not easy, because so much is expected of us. Singing high, singing low, having acting chops, being in shape. Yet, we rarely get the final bow. Austin will definitely get the final bow this month, with his leading role of Emil Griffith in Blanchard's Champion in Chicago. We'll be making some changes to Emil, as we did with Charles and Fire Shut Up in My Bones when I sang it at Lyric. Fire was premiered with the bass baritone Devon Tynes. When it was brought to the Met, it was raised up a bit because Will Liverman is a higher baritone than Devon, and I'm an even higher baritone than Will. There were some things I worked out with Terrence to modify a few passages. My voice has the most overtones in the upper register, so if there are certain words that are really important, I can sing them higher. None of this is about showing off. It's about the most effective storytelling. This summer, Austin will take on yet another leading contemporary role 
with the premiere of the expanded version of Damien Getter's American Apollo at Des Moines Metro Opera. Opera is the story of humanity. It sheds light on every aspect of who we are. It's a collaboration of every art form imaginable. You must be master of many things to perform opera. I'm doing Romeo and Juliet right now. I was talking to my wife, and she was impressed with my knowledge of Shakespeare. But I have to know Shakespeare. I have to know about so many other genres to be able to do what I do. My mission in opera is to make sure that I fully represent the beautiful and incomprehensibly important nature of the history of this extraordinary art form. And I also want to make sure that I represent its future, where it could go, where it should and will go, all while holding on to the beautiful parts of the past. And now, filling the gap. David Chandler on Retrospect Opera's First Decade. The British inferiority complex regarding music, which can genuinely startle people from elsewhere, is particularly evident when it comes to opera. Almost any summary history of British opera employs what I call the Great Gap Theory, to suggest that the genre was long mired in the Valley of Humiliation. In its extreme but very common form, the GGT maintains that there was no really consequential British opera between Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, 1680s, and Britain's Peter Grimes, 1945. Some idea of the sheer audaciousness of that can be gained if we consider how such a theory might look if applied to other art forms. What, say, if libraries took the view that there was no really consequential English novel between Alfred Benz' Orinoco, 1688, and Virginia Woolf's The Waves, 1931. Or if art galleries took the view that there was no really consequential British painting between Godfrey Neller's Chinese Convert, 1687, and Francis Bacon's Three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion, first exhibited 1945. While these alternative applications of a GGT would be quite properly dismissed as outrageous nonsense, in the world of opera, the GGT is given a surprisingly easy ride. For those with doubts, there are, of course, slightly softer versions of the GGT on offer. Handel, who became a British citizen in 1727, is sometimes treated as an honorary Englishman for operatic purposes thus shaving half a century off the interregnum between Purcell and Britain. More commonly, the comic operas of Gilbert and Sullivan are held up as a sort of oasis in the desert, or the beggar's opera gets an indulgent mention, especially as Britain blasted with a new arrangement. But these are little more than tweaks to the larger narrative of the brief rise, long fall, and eventual redemption of British opera. Challenging such an ossified narrative is not easy. People who have invested much time trying to understand 18th or 19th century British opera on its own terms have usually emerged with a positive view. Witness such revelatory studies as Roger Fisk's English Theatre Music in the 18th Century, 1973, or George Biddlecombe's English Opera from 1834 
1864-1894, and the publications, performances, and recordings of Peter Holman. These scholars were, to an extent, prepared to counter the establishment cry of There is no Mozart, there is no Verdi, by gently suggesting that, though this is true, it doesn't mean there are no British works deserving a hearing. Unfortunately, though, it's still rare to find people willing to take British operas from the Great Gap on their own terms. I've often found myself incredulous at the way Peter Grimes is used as a sort of yardstick to measure earlier British operas, with a view to declaring them wanting, as though someone were to go to a pre-Raphaelite exhibition with a postcard of Bacon's Three Studies, and then, having made some perfunctory comparisons, emerge with the expected conclusion that the pre-Raphaelites couldn't match Bacon's power and originality, and seemed to have the wrong idea of art. Despite the difficulties, Retrospect Opera was established in 2014 with the basic goal of crowdfunding professional recordings of British operas and related works from The Great Gap to foster a reevaluation. Where necessary, it mostly was necessary, new performance editions would be created. The works would be recorded in the fullest form, the survival of the music and librettos allowed, and the recordings would be accompanied by essays, helping situate the works in their historical contexts. Retrospect became a registered UK charity in 2015 and is currently run by five trustees, Valerie Langfield, Andrew H. King, Christopher Wiley, Benjamin Hamilton, and myself. We decided to start with Ethel Smith's The Bosun's Mate, 1916, the most successful opera by Britain's best-known female composer. An opera, moreover, coming up to its centenary, and with extra musical interest thanks to its connection with World War I and Smith's involvement with the suffragettes. Almost immediately, however, we were persuaded to start on a second offer, Edward Loder's Raymond and Agnes, 1855. Andrew Lamb had established the Loder Project in 2013 to advocate towards a revival of this remarkable opera, generally considered one of the best of its period. Even the New Grove Dictionary of Opera, not in general very favorable to British opera of the Great Gap, found here a sense of drama and depth of musical characterization, close to Verdi. It seemed a good fit for us, and we took it on alongside the bosun's mate. With hindsight, we were extremely naive. Getting financial support was far more difficult than we expected, and running two campaigns together meant it often seemed we were robbing Peter to pay Paul. It soon became obvious that in the world of opera, there was a strong perception that there was only so much cake to go around, and that we were late to the table, not to mention that any project of this nature necessarily challenges the GGT and those invested in it. We had, therefore, to look outside the world of opera, and here it must be said that funding Smith was much easier. Most of the support came from people and institutions with broader interests in women's music and the development of modern feminism. In September 2015, 
We had all the excitement and anxiety of making our first recording. With Odeline de la Martinez conducting, and Nadine Benjamin singing Mrs. Waters, Smith's central character. The progress from recording to release was by no means smooth. There was much to learn. But in July 2016, The Bosun's Mate was released as R-0001. Opera made it the disc of the month, and BBC Radio 3 declared it the best-ever Smith recording. A must for any self-respecting Smith collection or collection of British music. Even better, it led to staged revivals of the opera on both sides of the Atlantic. Our euphoria was tempered only by the fact that we received no recognition from the broadsheets, those powerful cultural gatekeepers. In 2016, we launched the first of a number of smaller projects, partly to test the theory that it was easier to attract funding from outside the operatic world and for extra-musical reasons. The chosen work was Edward Solomon's Pickwick, 1889, arguably the first really successful musical treatment of a Charles Dickens story. Solomon, regarded as Arthur Sullivan's greatest rival at the time, called this a dramatic cantata, the same description Gilbert and Sullivan had used for Trial by Jury, 1875, an obvious influence. Most of the support came from people interested in Dickens, and a recording was made in September 2016, starring Simon Buterus as Mr. Pickwick. This was released as RO002 in February 2017, and we started to feel like a record label, despite the ongoing difficulty of finding support for Raymond and Agnes. In fact, another smaller project came next. Charles Dibden, having written and composed two of the most successful English operas of all time in The Waterman, 1774, and The Quaker, 1775, developed a kind of one-man musical show that he called a table entertainment. These involved him impersonating many different characters, and he regarded them with good reason as one-man operas. No attempt to reconstruct and record them had been made before, but in June 2017, we recorded Christmas Gambles, 1795, with Simon Boderus in the Dibden role. Since then, we have recorded two more key Dibden works, The Wags, 1790, the most successful of his table entertainments, and his musical play The Jubilee, 1769, the celebration of Shakespeare that enjoyed a longer opening run than any other British theater work of the 1700s. Christmas Gambles was followed by our reissue of Odeline de la Martinez's classic, but long available, 1994 recording of the records, 1906, Smith's largest scale opera. Meanwhile, the funding had finally come together for Raymond and Agnes, thanks to some outstandingly generous acts of private patronage, and we made a recording in October 2017, conducted by Richard Boyning, one of the great champions of 19th century British opera. It was released as RO005 in August 2018 to generally good reviews, and was again, gratifyingly, 
the disc of the month in opera. Raymond and Agnes was followed by the Jubilee to mark the work's 250th anniversary in 2019, then a recording of Smith's Fête Galant, 1923, again with Martinez, and then the Wags, the last recorded in November 2019, shortly before the COVID pandemic changed everything. Our next project was George Alexander McFerrin's The Soldier's Legacy, 1864, a chamber opera specially composed for London's celebrated Gallery of Illustration, and arguably the most self-consciously English opera ever composed at that time. This was seriously delayed by COVID, but eventually recorded in December 2021, and released as RO009 in January 2023. It was followed in turn by an abridged adaptation of G. Herbert Rodwell's fantastically popular melodrama, Jack Shepard, 1839. And this article will appear more or less simultaneously with R.O. 011. Charles Villiers Stanford's Seamus O'Brien, 1896, the biggest project we've attempted since Raymond and Agnes. At a time when opera seemed set on a course ever more remote from popular culture, Seamus O'Brien proved a huge success in the 1890s, and we have high hopes that it will put further pressure on the GGT. When we started out in 2014, we certainly couldn't have imagined how our catalog would develop. There have been more smaller projects with piano than we would have expected, in large part because of the enormous difficulty of funding larger projects. But one thing we have learned, and we hope conveyed to our supporters, is just how porous the British tradition of opera is, existing on a spectrum with various other kinds of theatrical musical entertainment. There is often plenty of room for debate about what is and is not an opera, though at the same time it's often easy to reach the conclusion that it doesn't really matter. There is no doubt that in the British tradition, opera and musical theater, more generally, pursued a much closer relationship to spoken drama than it did elsewhere. Embracing, rather than deploring this, if there is one thing we have taken more seriously than many of our predecessors in this area, it is our insistence on including spoken dialogue whenever this was part of the original work. Of the principal works we have recorded, Fête Galant is the only one without it. This matter of spoken dialogue goes right to the heart of the problem of the GGT. The 20th century came to fetishize Dido and Aeneas as a work of transcendent genius, Purcell's one true opera, as many critics have it. The corollary was that Purcell's later so-called semi-operas, with their extensive spoken dialogue, came to seem disappointing, the first stage of English opera's long, long fall before Britain came to its rescue. As Robin Holloway puts it, the cultural climate allegedly thwarted Purcell's operatic genius because it simply didn't give full scope to a natural, musico-dramatic gift potentially the equal of Britain's. By forward extension, the argument becomes that the cultural climate of the next two and a half centuries was equally unpropitious for the emergence of Britonesque talent in true opera, 
hence the long valley of humiliation. But if we are to be historical at all, we need to recognize that this is an argument that emerged at a particular time for a particular purpose. When Edward Taylor, 1784 to 1863, the distinguished Gresham Professor of Music and one of the best-known British critics of his time, discussed Purcell in 1843, he took a radically different view. To Taylor, Dido and Aeneas was the work of an inexperienced boy, enthralled to Italian music. On the other hand, in the semi-operas, especially King Arthur, Taylor saw Purcell achieving true individuality, and deciding as a matter of artistic principle that an opera should be so constructed that the assistance of music should be necessary, or at least auxiliary, never needless or intrusive. That music should be employed whenever and in whatever way it can best carry on the business of the scene, but that when the action of the drama needs not its assistance, it should be withheld. An opera, therefore, constructed on these principles, would be a drama of which music formed a necessary, frequent, and integral part, but of which the dialogue was spoken. The question of whether the argument is correct or not is less important than the recognition that it made a great deal of sense in 1843, validating the way subsequent British opera had developed. Anyone prepared to make the imaginative effort to get away from our present Dido and Aeneas-centered view of Purcell's theatrical career will find the entire history of British opera in the 18th and 19th centuries starting to look excitingly different. As to the future, our main project for our tenth year is a recording of Marjorie Kennedy Fraser in Granville Bantock's Celtic folk opera the Seal Woman, 1924, to mark that unique work centenary. And, looking further into the future, we would love to complete our Smith collection by recording her last opera, Entente Cordiale, 1925. The problem is, we haven't been able to trace the manuscript full score. Can anybody help? For more information, see retrospectopera.org.uk. And now, opera in the USA. Dallas. Visually, vocally, and orchestrally, even with a late change of tenor, the Tosca that opened the Dallas Opera's 2023-24 season, October 13th, was particularly fine. The co-production with the Cincinnati, Detroit, and Montreal Opera Companies imposed no concept, no modernization of the Kirka 1800 Roman setting. As if peeling away layers of evil, the set and costume designer Robert Perziola gave us grand ecclesiastical space for Act I, a coldly formal office for Scarpia, and a stark rampart for the denouement all effectively lit by Thomas Hayes. Unlike almost every other costume designer, Perziola even got liturgical vestments for the Te Deum mostly right. The stage director, Andrew Nienaber, deftly managed logistics. Eva Plonka played the eponymous diva to the hilt, from flirtation to fierce jealousy, from connivance 
to desperate betrayal. There was more than a little silent screen melodrama, but in this of all operas, it fitted. Her soprano could blaze thrillingly on high, as well as flicker seductively. We'll continue this article next time. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.